Good morning. Today's scripture is from Matthew 9, verses 14 through 17. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Okay, what's up? We are back, everyone. And uh, uh, so Saturday, we went on vacation, and on uh, last Saturday, we woke up, and it had snowed, yes, in April, in North Carolina, and it was amazing. None of you care. It was incredible. <laughs> Snow guys, like, like small frozen water flying around. Um, and uh, so that was great. We're fresh. We're ready. We're back. Um, now, we have been in the book of Matthew for a while. This is uh, sermon number 47 in Matthew, and uh, chapter 9, and set to retire when it's done. Um, and then um, I don't, I was having a hard time remembering this week when, when we last did a Matthew sermon. I think it was probably about a month ago. I think last week we had, we had Sam, a uh, week before that was Easter, and then we had guest speaker Aaron Ross, and then, and then me. So it's been a while. So uh, a little review. Um, we were at the place where Jesus had called Matthew to be a disciple. Matthew, the author of the book, Matthew of Gospel of Matthew fame. Um, and and God called, Jesus called him to be his disciple, and he was a tax collector, which is basically a traitor. Uh, this man was hated by everyone, hated by the Romans, because how are you going to like somebody that's turning on their own people to help you? You, you can't trust that guy. So he's low class there. Um, and then low class in the Jewish world as well, because he's collaborating with their own oppressors to make money, Okay. So Jesus chooses Matthew, and the Pharisees were mad about it. So that's where we were last time, um, and we're going to go from there. Now, um, when I was writing this, this is a different kind of passage. Um, it's been just um, event after event after event, and then there's this passage, which is not an event. It's, it's a deep philosophical sort of quandary that Jesus sort of lays before them. It's as if, like, Matthew's telling all these stories, and then he says, isn't this interesting? all these things that are happening. And then he wants you to ponder something before you go any farther to sort of reframe everything that you're seeing because there's been healings up to here and then there's this, whatever this is, and then there's more healings after this, okay? So um, when I was writing this, sometimes I know where the plane's gonna land, okay? When I'm writing a sermon, preparing, preparing to deliver the sermon. Um, not so much today. I, I was, I'm not really still positive. I know it landed last time, thankfully, um, a little late. Um, but, but nonetheless, we're back on schedule. And there's several places throughout this passage where the plane can land. Um, there's a wide range of things going on in this passage. And so there will probably be things for all of you in completely different places, in completely different ways. And for you, the plane can land there. That's fine. Okay? Um, and you can just ponder on that thing that is for you. Um, we're going to run a whole gamut of different ideas through this passage. Okay, so um, I'm going to pray, and we're going to ask for presence of mind and wisdom, and uh, let's do this, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place. Thank you for these people. Guide our time together. Fill us up. Give us joy. Um, enlighten us. Um, show us some of your mercy, your grace. Uh, continue to heal us, make us whole, and make us instruments of your healing. Speak through me now. Give me clarity of thought. Um, uh, thank you for the gift that is this place. Thank you for the gift of, of Watermark Church. Thank you for um, the honor and the privilege that it is to stand with my brothers and sisters here and to talk about the ancient Christians who followed Jesus and to go through their writings together. Thank you for preserving them. Thank you for keeping them for us so that we could do everything we can within our power to grab a glimpse of what they, uh, of what was going through their mind as they lived through these incredible times. Uh, give us peace. 
allow us to be here in the present. And uh, thank you for all these gifts. Amen. Okay. So, the Pharisees are mad at Jesus, per the huge. Um, Jesus is sitting at a table with a tax collector whom he has just made his disciple. We're going to talk about that a little later. He's sitting at this table, and who's at the table? There are, it literally says, tax collectors and other sinners are sitting at the table. In other words, like, use your imagination, the lowest of the low, the scum of the earth, the people who maybe in your society you would never cavort with. Cavort, is that still a word people use? Um, that you would never, like, spend time with, that you're like, no, I am, I'm just standing here. I don't know them. I know they're here. I'm not with them. I don't want anyone to think I'm with them. Those people at the table with Jesus. In the first century, um, to refresh your brain a little bit, table fellowship was intensely important. It um, signified the kind of person that you were, your level of honor, um, your sort of social rung of the ladder. That's who you ate with. You didn't eat with people less than you. You ate with people greater than you to the best of your ability. Um, And here's Jesus saying, no, these are my people. These sinners all these people that are the rejects of you, these are my people, and I set the table and eat dinner with them. Okay, so you would expect this from the Pharisees, and we have come to expect that from the Pharisees. Um, and so we read that, and I'm like, of course. And Jesus is like, I don't, I don't care about your opinion, Pharisees. And we're like, we're like, yeah, take that, Pharisees. And then you come to this passage, and it says this. Then John's disciples came. Remember John? Um, I call him John the Baptizer. He wasn't a very good Baptist. Long hair, probably danced. Um, he, <laughs> um, he refused to conform to everything that was going on. He, um, his father was a, was a Levitical priest, um, and he basically said, I'm not interested, Dad. You, you sell out in your work that you're doing in the, the temple for the, for the man. I'm going to the desert, and I'm going to start a church out there. And I'm going to baptize people not in your mikvah, your expensive waste of money mikvah. We're going to the desert in the river, God's mikvah. And we're going to baptize people there. And the way he did this, John was a reformer, all right? John was a good guy. He was a reformer. Um, he called people out of the establishment, out of the temple to the desert. And he baptized them there and then sent them through the water as in, as in like, we are re-entering Israel again and we're going to start over. And we're going to do this right because we've gotten it so wrong. And it sounds like, a lot of conversations I've had with a lot of you guys. Like, it's wrong. It's off the rails. We have to start it all over. Um, that's what John was trying to do. He's a reformer. Um, so, John is the cousin of Jesus. John sends his disciples to Jesus because John sees that Jesus is even doing things that John's like, whoa, hold on. We're not, I'm not going that far. I mean, I'm upset too. I'm not that mad. I'm not like, eating with sinner mad. That's not me. And he sends his disciples uh, to Jesus. Um, I mean, have, have you ever had well-meaning people who know you, who were there for your journey, maybe even our family, who are aware that you are out to do something different and they're on board and you get down the road and then one day they kind of turn on you and they kind of say, you know, I, I prepared the way for you. Where are you going now with this? This is not what I wanted to be a part of, okay? Um, part of growth oftentimes is realizing that not everyone is going to come with you. Um, family members, um, your old group, the people that you were raised with, um, they, they may not come with you. That is sort of what's happening here. A, a lot of that idea is wrapped up in the answer that Jesus gives. Um, that is part of growth. You can't bring everyone along. You must grow, though. You must keep moving and keep going. Um, so what does Jesus think? He hears this question. They come to him and they say, um, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not? Like, the dichotomy of, John's, of John and John's disciples and the Pharisees, and both of them fast. And Jesus' disciples are not fasting. And he says, 
why is it that you're not fasting? Now, Jesus could have answered this question like a regular person and said, like, well, fasting is for mourning and um, fasting was established when the kingdom was sort of lost and, and our land is now being occupied. So we're fasting so that God can come establish his kingdom again. We're praying for the Messiah to come and raise up. And, and you just launch into this big like homily of like answering the question as we do when somebody comes up. Because this is a moral question. They come up to him and they say, isn't, pardon, like excuse me if I'm wrong, but isn't like what you're doing like wrong? Isn't it, isn't it wrong? Aren't you breaking like some moral rules? And instead of saying, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not sinning. Instead of that, Jesus launches into this philosophical riddle, non-answer thing at all. And he sort of leaves it there. And then I picture this because um, they're wearing clothes that probably have holes and they're wearing like wineskins and stuff. And he starts pointing out stuff on them and invents another riddle using stuff they're wearing and gives that to them. He's not answering the question. Um, He's not doing what any one of us would do who cares about our reputation and our work. He's not defending himself. He's not even, he's not at all guiding them to say, well, see, this is okay. In which case they could say, oh, thank you for clearing that up. We'll go tell John. Jesus is like, John can think what John wants to think. You can think what you want to think. Here's something to ponder. A riddle. (laughs) Okay? Um... So, uh, and then Jesus, so he really throws out two riddles. One of them is about, and, and these seem to have nothing to do with what they're talking about. Um, the first one is about presence of, of like presence of mind, being present and receiving the gift of life. Okay. And the other um, is about growth and how growth happens. And... None of these things have anything to do with, like, really with fasting or with, with like, whether or not Jesus is sinning. So, here we go. Let's look at these riddles together. And, and so we're going to kind of go all over the place. There's lots of different ways that all of this can be applied. Um, I'm scattering a, like, a wide throw of seed here. And I think there's a lot of you who will be like, oh, yeah, that fits perfectly with me. If some part doesn't apply to you, we'll keep going to the next part. Maybe you'll connect with that. Um, okay. And maybe, maybe we'll land the plane. On time, even. Okay. So... Uh, verse 15, Jesus answered, Jesus non-answered, answered, uh, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn with, uh, while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and they, uh, then they will fast. So, okay, context time, shall we? Um, modern weddings don't look like this. Um, modern weddings, um, so I was at a wedding last night. Shout out if you were there. Robbie Oberreiter and Kristen got married. Um, uh, and modern weddings, especially American weddings, are unique. We were sitting at the table last night across, uh, across the table from a Japanese girl who was describing like how different American weddings are. I never knew. I just thought, totally normal. Um, but they're unique. Um, so uh, I'm not going to go into all the details. I'll talk about the ending. So we, we have the ceremony, and, and then it's about four or five-hour ceremony, like the, the whole night. Uh, and, then, and then they get in the car. People throwing rice or fireworks or whatever. And, um, and they get in the car, and they drive away, and they go on a honeymoon for a week, two weeks, whatever. Um, that's how they sort of celebrate marriage in the first few days. Um, ancient Jewish weddings started with one particular ceremony, um, Jesus actually references it and talks about it in the book of John. Um, the boy betrothed to the woman will go to his father's house that already has many rooms, and he will build another room because there's many rooms in the father's house. Um, if it were not so, I would have told you. Uh, many rooms on the father's house, and he's going to build another one. Um, and then he's going to go. Uh, when he's done, he's going to come and receive her unto himself so that where he is, there she may be also, okay? Um, some of you are not familiar with the Bible. All of that is like the direct words of Jesus describing like his relationship with the people, okay? So um, the boy goes, gets, gets the girl and they go back and they start their new life together. Now, almost instantaneously, when you would expect nobody would show up because American weddings are like, no, it's alone time. 
All the friends suddenly show up at a Jewish wedding. Then, here we are, and they all show up, friends, family, the closest people to you, and they stay for a week. All of them, in your house, in that room. That room becomes like a mini kingdom. The, the groom and the bride become, they, they refer to them as king and queen. And they're there, and they eat food, and they sing, and they dance, and they drink wine, um, and eventually they go to sleep, they drink wine, and then they wake up again. And then they start over again for a week. And there's speeches and monologues and readings and poetry, singing, dancing for a week long. It's a celebration uh, of life. Now, um, one of the theologians uh, who talked about this said, on one occasion, uh, on such an occasion, there came into the lives of poor and simple people a joy, a rejoicing, a festivity, a plenty that might come only once in a lifetime. Because most people didn't have the kind of resources to do this kind of thing, but some did, and when it happened, it was incredible. And you partied for a week. That was your, that was the wedding. That's what Jesus is talking about. This may only happen one time. It's a huge deal. Now, when weddings happened, especially weddings like this, um, religious rites and rituals were set aside to celebrate. Um, Life and love was vastly more important, like love, marriage, the union of two people, the bond they had, was vastly more important actually even than um, sort of the, the religious rituals. So they were put aside. Um, fasting itself specifically was a way of mourning. The Jewish people fasted once a week uh, or twice a week, depending on which sect you were a part of, and certain times of the year they would fast as well. Um, it symbolized mourning for like the loss of the kingdom um, cries for the, the reunification of, of Israel, for the occupied, occupation forces to, to be banished, and for the kingdom to be whole again with king, with God reigning on the throne. They, they longed for the time of David. They were looking back, and they had it, and they lost it, and they're mourning it. Um, so that's what fasting was. You would not fast at a wedding unless there's one reason you would fast at a wedding. If you disagreed with the wedding. That is the only reason you would fast at a wedding. It was a huge insult. And so you picture somebody walking into the room and everyone's happy and there's pizza and there's soda and there's people hanging out, having fun. And they're like, hey, have a slice of pizza. And you're like, I will not. And they're like, they all look at you. Well, have a, have a Coke. No. We'll have a cupcake. I will not have a cupcake for I am in fasting. And everyone's like... You disagree. It's, it's that moment in the ceremony where you're like, um, speak now or forever hold your peace. He's like, eh, back here. I don't think this should happen. I think this is wrong. So Jesus says, he's basically covertly talking to them and saying, I know you disapprove of all of this, of the people I've chosen to bind myself to. I know that you're upset about my choices. Um, We are celebrating this. These people that I have chosen um, were nobodies. They were losers. They were tax collectors and zealots and the scum of the earth. And he said, and I chose them. And the fact that I chose them, imagine how these people that Jesus is choosing would have felt. They were fishermen. They were just nobodies. Um, This is like going into the, the worst, poorest neighborhood in any large city and a scholar from Harvard going in there and, and finding a young child and saying, you come with me, I'm raising you up to be a scholar. And the whole family freaks out. And they're excited because this is a way out of their situation. They never thought any of them could ever amount to anything because they're a useless rabble, as Dio Chrysostom put them a, a, a few weeks ago. Uh, they, they're nobodies. And nobody approves of what Jesus is doing because nobody chooses students like that. Um, This is not what people did. Um, Nobody chooses the people that Jesus chose. We're going to talk about that a little later too. Uh, Jesus throws one more thing on the end. He says, so basically we're here, we're going to celebrate. And then um, I'm going to underline something here uh, for you, this part right here. He says, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and then they will fast. So two things he could be referring to. He could just be saying, 
Good things don't stay forever. This time will pass, but right now we're happy we're celebrating. He's more likely referring to the fact that he knows his work is going to end badly. I mean, people have these, people have these debates. When did Jesus know that he was the Messiah, God, blah, blah, blah. Um, even without those debates of what Jesus knew about himself and divinity, uh, there is an understanding in the first century. There were lots of these messiahs that rose up. Every single one of them died a terrible death under the hand of the Roman Empire. Every single one of them. There were a bunch before him. There were a bunch after him. Simon Bargera. These guys, they suffered and died terrible, usually crucifixion. It was the way you displayed traitors to the world. Said, you want to go? Here's what it looks like. Okay? Um, So there's this understanding in Jesus' mind. He knows what is coming. There's only one way this thing can end. He knows when he heads to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen. This is how they all, they all went to Jerusalem and were killed. Um, But what Jesus is saying is, but right now, here we are. So I'm going to go ahead and bum you out today. First off, later today, it's going to rain. It might hail. And then one day you're going to die. You with me? Um, these are two things that will happen. It may not rain on you. Somewhere here it will rain. Um, and that doesn't mean that we bring that into right now. Because we're in a good place and we're having fun. And this place, in this place, this is right now, this is the only time that exists. And we are here, and we're okay, and we're breathing, and we're clothed. Many of you even had a donut this morning. And here you are, and you're okay, and you're good. And so right now, we're enjoying ourselves. Here we are, enjoying ourselves. Um, later on, as we move through life, things will, at some point, not be as good as this. That doesn't mean we don't celebrate this moment. That doesn't mean we don't receive this as a gift that it is. Now, um, when I started like pondering this, what Jesus is saying, um, I started thinking about, uh, my first thought was I remembered two years ago on Christmas, we talked about time. We talked about, there's two words uh, in the scriptures for time. There's chronos and there's kairos. Chronos is um, like 11.45 or it's, it's a measurement of time. It's, and it's a point in time. It's like 20 minutes, it's April 23rd, it's, it's like calendar days and chronological time, one second after another. Um, that's chronos. Um, there's another word, which is kairos. So there's these passages where, so I think we use the example of Ecclesiastes, to everything there is a season, a time to plant, a time to reap, a time to put on, a time to take off, a time to be born, a time to die. Um, the word that is used there is not chronos. It's not, it's not talking about the time that you will die or the time that you will plant. It's talking about moments. Kairos is the, is the, the word, it's, it's the idea of moments of time. And the way that they personified this to drive the point home, the Romans personified it as this guy. Um, his name is Kairos. He has wings on his feet um, and on his back because he flies real fast. He's running on his tippy toes, always depicted on his toes. Apparently that's how you ran before shoes. Um, and he's moved so fast that he didn't have time to like get dressed. He's just running and... <laughs> There's things that they put in this picture of him. Um, so first off, he's holding a razor, like an ancient razor in his hand, that little circle thing, um, um, because it cuts like a knife the moment that it's passing. Um, if it passes by, if you miss it, it cuts because you can't get it back. Um, also, the back of his head is, is bald. Um, uh, he's not wearing a helmet. That's, that's his head. Uh, the idea is if he goes by, you can't grab him from behind and catch it. It's gone. But he's got hair on the front of his head because if you see him coming, if you see the moment coming, you can seize it by the forelock, they would say. Um, so you would basically, they would make this figure, the philosophers would talk about it, somebody would sculpt it, and they would ponder it, and they would think about their life. Um, and I love this idea because that is, in a sense, um, what Jesus is referring to. There was a season in my life, and I was talking about this the other night uh, with, with my wife. We, we, in our mid-20s, mid to early 20s, um, 
there was a season where all of our friends were getting married at the same time. Like 24 to like 27. Everybody was getting married. And it was awesome. And it was like every three months, every, every two months, three months, there was another wedding and they were massive and they were celebratory. It was all the same people. And we all went to these weddings together and we're like, and you guys are next. They're like, woo, and then you guys are like, woo, and we're partying. And, and they, it was amazing. And we never noticed, but at some point it ended, like the season ended. And then like the weddings of our friends, of the people that, because the weddings that you go to, the people that, you're, that are not like your close friends and the weddings of your close friends, they are different. They're wildly different. Um, there is a joy when your close friends are like starting this new life that you won't find anywhere else. And you will party. And one day it ended and we didn't even notice it. And then we're looking back, we're saying, remember that time? All those weddings in that one period of time and it, it's gone. And then what happens is after that moment, the next thing starts where the friends have settled into their life. They get job offers, whatever, and they start moving away hundreds of miles, thousands of miles away. And the separation begins and the next part of life begins. Um, and had we realized that it was just a moment that that would end, then we would have received it as the gift that it is. And, and to some extent we did receive it, but we didn't understand what that moment in life meant and the weight of it, okay? Um, there's a guy named Epictetus. Um, he was an ancient Greek philosopher. Um, and here's what he said. In just, I'm just going to throw this out there, okay? It goes like this. He said, um, he literally taught his followers to say, he said, when you are kissing your child, say to yourself, one day you must die. Now, do what you want with that. But listen, <laughs> that's, if you ponder that, what he's saying is um, the, the most wonderful moments in life, remember the preciousness of it and the fact that you can't keep it, that it's here. And the only thing that you can take with you from that moment is the thankfulness that, that you proclaim and receive and the, the meaning and the joy in it all. That's what you take with you. You can't take the thing with you. Your children grow up really, really quickly. And in this moment, there is only one thing to do. Receive. Now, uh, there is... Two things that end up happening, two reactions. So uh, one of them I noticed when uh, I took my son to this, he's, he's nine years old, he was uh, eight at the time. Uh, there's a place in Tarpon Springs called the Replay Museum. It's like an old vintage arcade, all the old games I used to play when I was his age, eight, nine years old. Um, and they're all there, and I used to bring every Thursday like a bag of quarters before like church, and, and I would go to the arcade and... And I would put the quarters in and play the games. And it was the most fun of my week. I would play these games. And when the quarters ran out, I knew I had had a lot of fun. And I moved on. Um, now, the way it works now is you go in and you give them like 13 bucks or whatever. It's not a bad deal. And they give you a wristband. And like you just hit start and the game starts. No need for quarters anymore. However, I realized really quickly that ruins the game entirely. Because all you have to do is walk up and hit start. And then when you die, it's like, do you want to continue? Okay. I don't have quarters. It doesn't matter. Yes. And what if I'm just really bad at it? What if I just walk away, talk on the phone for a second, and I just keep hitting start? It doesn't matter. You're going to beat the game no matter what because it doesn't really matter because it doesn't really end. And I come to realize that there's this thing about this thing coming to an end that actually gives it meaning and purpose. That actually is like, Look how far we got. Look what we did with what we had. And there's this thing where you can receive it. If you understand that it is going to end, you can actually receive it more so than before. Um, there's this other thing that happens, and a friend of mine um, named this effect. Um, he, he called it the defeated dads of Disney effect. Um, and... Uh, and I, and I love this, and we've talked about this a lot, and I've witnessed firsthand the defeated dads of Disney effect um, by going to Disney and just pay attention sometime. We're all from Florida, love you. You'll get season pass at some point in life, whatever. You'll just go for whatever reason. Um, when you go, remember, 
Look around for defeated dads of Disney. You'll see them frustrated, $800 shorter than they used to be, trying to interpret these hieroglyphics on this map, lost, knowing their fast pass is now ending, and they're not going to get to frontier land on time to see the stupid bears. It's all he wanted. It's all that's left of his childhood. And the meaning is slipping away, and everyone's mad. I literally was with my wife, and I was, we were standing there, and I saw this, this kid come romping up to his parents. He's like, he's like 11 years old. Mickey hat, um, like Mickey popsicle, eating it, walks up between his two parents and goes, I want to go home. <laughs> and in unison, they turned and looked at him and was like, what? And his dad is just instantly like, just, that was so much money. You want to go home? Like, because there's this thing that happens. That's what I want to talk about. And I'm going to try to illustrate it with terrible drawings. Here we go. Now, it's always a guy and an arrow pointing to an X, is it not? But anyways, there's so many ways you can use this. So, there's this event that you are looking forward to. It's the job, it's the car, it's the spouse, it's the kids, it's the, it's the thing. It could be a spiritual thing, growth thing. It's, it's something in your life. You're looking forward to it. And that is going to be, that is going to be the thing. That is it. And if it's a family thing, that's going to be the moment where we make our memories. And everything is leading up to this moment. And this is the most important moment. And so there is a lot of, a lot of expectation of surrounding this thing, this all-important thing, because this is, this is our time. We're going to make memories. It's going to be great. Um, and then um, you don't have had expectations just for that. You also have fear that maybe it's not going to go right. It's not going to happen. Um, and maybe it's going to rain. And what are we going to do with, about the wedding if it rains? And what, so you have, you have these fears. So the whole thing is just like fear, fear, and then expectation when you're there. Um, okay, don't go on YouTube and Google... Um, YouTube and Google. Don't go on YouTube and search for uh, Chuck E. Cheese fights. <laughs> don't do that. Um, but if you did, what you would see is the overwhelming amount of Fist fights that break out amongst parents at Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> Scientists have studied this and come to find out that it is the expectation of the moment that everything has to be perfect because this is my five-year-old. This is the only birthday that they get, of a five-year-old birthday that they will ever get, and they're so stressed and they have so much expectations that when something starts going wrong, someone sort of steps on their toes, fist fight breaks out. And it happens all the time because of the weight of the thing. And the expectations end up breaking the thing and the fear ends up breaking the journey. So the whole thing is bad. Now, this little thing that Jesus says here actually offers us some insight into something that sort of can guide how we walk through our life. Um, Jesus says, yeah, I mean, there are things, there are, there are moments coming down the road. And some people live in fear of these things. What if something goes wrong down the road? And you can't enjoy right now because of the fear that is coming. Um, but the fact is that like Jesus kind of paints it as like, yes, that's a great thing, but all these things are gifts. That is a gift, but all along the way there's gifts. The whole thing is just gifts all the way down. And, and I mean, a personal thing that I've come to learn is that you put a lot of expectation on the big thing, that that's going to be the moment where you make all the memories. But as I look back over life, that's never actually been true. The, the, the greatest moments I have are like the bathtub at night with the kids. Those are the greatest moments that there is. Reading, reading stories with them at night. Um, the playing in the backyard on the swing. Stuff that we do sometimes because well, we're going to leave in two hours. The kids need to get some energy out. Let's go play with them in the yard. You're just using that to get to something else, but that turns out to be the great thing. That turns out to be like, no, that turns out to be the moment in time. You look back and you're like, no, those are the times that were the gift. And the prompting is to receive it Receive the gift. Jesus was not interested in spending you, in you spending your time with the moral quandaries of the world. Running around, am I in sin? Am I wrong? Is this, is this wrong? He wants you to love and live and receive the gifts of God that he is giving you every single moment of the day. Life is not a test from God. Life is a gift from God. Um, life is not, you were not put here losing a game. That, you're, that you need to suddenly try to figure out how to win. 
before it ends. You were put here to receive the gift of God, to receive the gift of love. That is why you were put here. And we spend all this time. When Christianity becomes about the end thing, it's all about after you die. When Christianity becomes that, what we do is we destroy actual Christian life. We destroy life here now in this world. And, and not just for us, we kind of ruin it for everybody because we're the only ones not working to make things better. That's what we do when we make the ending the point. You were put here to follow Jesus. That's why you were put here. That was riddle number one. Riddle number two. Matthew 9, 15. No one, so Jesus looks at them. I want you to picture him like I do. They're standing there, hands on their hips. They're mad. You're not fasting. And he looks them up and down, starts pointing at stuff they're wearing. Here we go. No one sews a patch on an unshrunk cloth, uh, of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine in old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst and the wine will run out, uh, uh, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So, okay. Jesus believed he was doing something new, something that didn't fit into everything else that had been done. Um, Jesus was reconciling people whom nobody ever attempted to reconcile before, unclean and clean, lepers and regular people. Bring them together, reunite them. I declare you clean. They're not going to. I do reconcile. Um, Jesus is reconciling Roman centurions who are occupying towns like Capernaum, Jewish towns. He's taking the Jewish elders. He's taking the Roman centurion. He's saying, reconcile together. I'm here for their healing too, not just yours. Reconcile them together. Um, He's taking the people of Capernaum and he's pointing across the Sea of Galilee. He says, over there, the Decapolis, where the Greeks are living, and they think they're better than you and you think you're better than them. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to bring you all together because how great would you all be then? We're going to reconcile you. And this is what Jesus is trying to do. So Jesus is trying to reconcile people that have never been reconciled. This is brand new. He's promoting people who had never been promoted. Um, He's taking the lowest of the low in the city, making them his disciples and sitting at their table, and he's demoting things that were the most important things. Fasting, circumcision, the, 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 the tribal markers of the day, of the Jewish people of the day, um, the dietary laws, all of this stuff. He's just like, ah, whatever. I don't care. This is what I care about. He's doing something new. People aren't getting it. They're not going to get it. If you're doing something new, don't expect people to get it. Okay? I, I know this from experience. It's going to hurt. It's Okay. Um, now, there are three things that I see from this whole thing that, that I take from this passage, and they're sort of broken up. And he starts off, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Um, pretty self-explanatory, but in case you're not getting it, wool uh, clothing and cotton clothing, like, it shrinks. So if you take a shrunken shirt and you put a brand new patch on it, the patch is going to shrink. It's going to make the hole bigger. It's going to make it worse, okay? Um, So the new thing that Jesus is doing is not meant to patch the old things. He says this outright. The new thing he is doing, he's not trying to patch it. Um, Broken things that already exist, like let's just say there was an earthly kingdom that might be broken. You cannot patch that earthly broken kingdom with the kingdom of God. This new thing that Jesus has given. You cannot do that. It's going to make it worse. Because the kingdom of the world is going to use this thing now to do more damage. You're just going to make it worse. It's its own thing. It's a separate thing. The work that Jesus is doing, it didn't fit in with the temple work. It didn't fit in with everything. The, the, the Christians eventually, because of the things that they were doing, like the Johannian community, the people who are uh, responsible for like uh, John, the writer of the Gospel of John, his community, they got kicked out of the Jewish church for bringing Samaritans. Because you can't, Mix the things Jesus is doing and the things that the other people were doing. It's a new thing. All you can do is call people out of the synagogue to come join. Because it doesn't fit. It's not going to. Um, And if you try to do that, you're just going to make it worse. Now, the second thing that I see um, is that the new thing will require new tools, not the old tools. The reason Jesus, one of the reasons I think Jesus chose who he chose. The lowest of the low, the rejects, the inner city impoverished children. 
to raise them up to be the leaders of a worldwide faith movement. The reason he did this um, was because all the other rabbis were choosing the educated, um, the smart, the advanced, um, those who were eloquent, who were capable, um, who had memorized uh, the first five books of the Torah by the age of 15. They literally did this. They could quote them at any moment of time. Um, And they would regularly. And you choose them because they already know how everything works. And they are capable of just learning your interpretation and, and going out and doing it. If Jesus had chosen one of those kids, um, he would have had to like empty their brain of everything that they had learned, sort of reprogram the whole deal. And it would have broken their faith. It was not designed for them. Jesus takes these empty vessels and he's got this new thing. And so he's going to pour it in somebody who's not already been filled up. He doesn't have to empty them out. Because it is difficult. If you have deconstructed your faith... Maybe you grew up in like a fundamentalist sort of community and you grew up and, and you've deconstructed, you've asked too many, too many questions that made a lot of people mad and you ended up like losing that community um, and you were sort of having these thoughts and they didn't fit in the old thing, but you crammed them in anyways. What happened? You broke it. It no longer works. I have a lot of friends who deconstructed their faith um, and they are now atheists because they were holding on to the old thing. It had to fit in the old thing, and if it doesn't fit in the old thing, these things that I see, if they don't fit in the old thing, then I can't, I can't be a part of this. I'm out. By the way, if that is you, I'm really glad you're here. I believe in resurrection. I believe these things can be put back together. I think you can do that here. Um, I've seen a lot of people do that here. A lot of us understand what you're going through. There have been doubts. There have been questions. There has been a journey, an expanding thing to where at some point you had to throw off the old thing. A lot of people here are familiar with that. And I'm glad you're here. Jesus chooses people who have not been filled up. And he chooses to fill them up. Um, And here's the thing. When you study scriptures, okay, Genesis here, Revelation over here, from the beginning to end, what you see is when God is moving things forward, all through the scriptures... There's going to be a choice that God is going to make about kings. He's going to choose kings. He's going to choose leaders. He's going to choose priests. He's going to choose prophets. And the people that he chooses are never the most qualified people. They're never the good students, the good rabbinical students that other rabbis choose. They're always like, is this all that, is, this, is there everyone you have? And they're like, well, there's a kid out in the field with the sheep, but you don't you want him. He's like, no, that's exactly who I want. Because nobody wants him, I want him. And, and that's who we're going to use. And then you move forward. These are the kinds of things that God is doing. Every time there's a choice to be made about who's going to lead the thing, God, uh, G- God says, I'm going to take the other person, which is why Jesus doesn't choose the qualified people. He goes and chooses the other people because they can be filled up in a way that the rest of us could not. Um, and here's the thing. This tells me that moving forward, when God speaks, it will not be through the people you would expect God to speak through. It will not be through the powerful and the highly educated and the qualified. It will be through women, um, people of color. It will be through oppressed peoples. It will be through people who you probably have not listened to because you have been trained not to listen to. And, and because of that, God's going to say, well, that's exactly who I'm going to speak through now. This is how I work. It's how I've always worked. And if you look at the scriptures from beginning to end, this is what you see. God choosing the people whom nobody else would listen to and saying, that's who I'm going to speak through. And you need to be aware of that because when God speaks and is now speaking through people whom you have not listened to, he wants you to now listen. He wants you to stand up. I don't know what just happened. I'm not, I'm not going to move. That is what God is going to do. That is part of the gospel story. The powerful and the elite having to set aside everything that they have and listen to the one whom they never would give a voice to. God is doing that, and he will do that. And you can be a part of the old broken cloth, or you can start listening to the new things. It is happening. Um... I'm going to read you something by William Barclay, a scholar from the 50s. This is, a, this is actually, I put the date on here, 1958. 
1958. And I want you to see this because I found tons and tons of scholars who were saying the same things in their own generation from the 1700s all the way up to now. Here's what he says, and I thought this was poignant. Within the church, this resentment of the new is chronic, and the attempt to pour new things into old molds is almost universal. We attempt to pour the activities of a modern congregation into an ancient church building, which was never meant for them. We attempt to pour the truth of new discoveries into creeds which are based on Greek metaphysics. We attempt to pour modern instruction into outworn language which cannot express it. We read God's word to men and women of the 21st century in Elizabethan English and seek to present the needs of modern men and women to God in prayer language which is 400 years old. He was fed up at the moment. He's like, I've got something to say. And he was sick of it. Every generation, this happens and will happen. At some point, I will be the old guard and there will be new people saying new things and I'm not going to want to listen to them. And I'm going to be you newfangled kids and your weird theologies. And my prayer for me and for you is that our humility and our grace and our understanding of how God works will uh, bring us together in unity not force us to drive a wedge in this whole thing. I don't think that's what God wants. Um, and here's how I know this. Okay, the last point. That was a good segue. Yes, okay. The new thing. Okay, so Matthew, Matthew adds, believe it or not, on the end of this passage, something that the other gospel tellers of this story don't add. He specifically adds a line on the end. So it says, They pour new wine into new wineskins, and then Matthew adds, and both are preserved. That's a big deal. Matthew is letting his people know the heart of Jesus' teaching was that success is not destroying the old way, actually. Success is doing a new thing that rises up and exists with the old thing. Old things eventually die away on their own, but it has nothing to do with you. That has to do with God's timing, God bringing this thing away. Look, I'm not reformed in even the slightest sense of the word. I don't want to destroy the reformed church. I think it's important. I think the work that they did and continue to do is important. Of course, I have wild disagreements. But I'm not trying to destroy them. I don't think that's success. That's actually Roman success. That's Roman victory. Christus... Uh, Pax, that's Pax Romana. That's victory through conquering our enemies. In the church, especially in the book of Romans, Paul offers another way, which is Pax Christi, which is peace through grace. I'm not trying to conquer you. I'm trying to hear you, understand you, love you, take communion with you, and trust that God will change you. And until that time, we are brothers and sisters. I am not trying to destroy you. Some of you sit down every year at the Thanksgiving table and do your best to destroy what came before you. That is not the intention that God has for your life at all. That was never the intention. In fact, success is when both are thriving in their own way. I'm not trying to destroy the Catholic Church. I have some problems with Catholic theology. I have problems with Greek Orthodox theology. Of course, it's what I do. I study New Testament interpretation. That's my job is to disagree with people. Um, And that's fine, but I see beauty in it. I'm not trying to destroy them. When you meet that person whom you disagree with, your job is not to conquer them and destroy them. Your job is to serve them, to pour yourself out for them, and to love them the way that Jesus did for his people and to bring them into the body of Christ. That is the goal. If you believe the Spirit of God is real and active and working, then then you have nothing to worry about. Um, Success is not destroying the other people. Um, as you can see, this is everywhere, this passage. And I don't know where you're all at. Some of you are on a path to growth. It will be difficult, but the journey is full of gifts. Um, don't hate where you came from. It's part of the journey. It's part of who you are. Who you will become encompasses everything that you were before you. In fact, you wouldn't be who you are now had you not had that thing before. So instead, you should be thankful. You are on a journey. Be aware of what God is doing. 
Try to pay attention. Try to listen. Again, my prayer for me and for you is that when God does a new thing, that we will accept it and recognize it and be graceful and maybe even say, how can I help? I have my disagreements. I have my problems. I want to establish the kingdom. We have a vested interest in the same thing. Let's start by taking communion together. That's where it starts. There are people on the other side of political aisles and stuff that, that I was talking about this this morning with somebody that I wildly disagree with on like almost everything. But if you set the communion out in front of us, set the communion table, I'd take communion with them. We may have a fun conversation afterwards, but I'd take communion with them. I don't think God wants me to attack and destroy them any more than he wants them to destroy me. Love and grace is the way salvation enters into the world by pouring ourselves out. We're going to take communion. Our communion servers can go ahead and take the elements and spread around the room. Um, This is how healing is brought. This is how unity, how things are made whole again. Um, The body of Christ, represented by the bread, broken for you so that you could find healing and wholeness again. The blood of Christ, spilled for you so that you, in your emptiness, could be filled up. If you are the kind of person who's who figures I could never do anything for God because of my past, because of where I've come from, because of who I am. I want you to pay attention to the story of scriptures and every single time God chooses somebody, it's likely just like you. God has not abandoned you. God sees potential in you. God wants to use you to establish his kingdom. So our communion server is gonna come and spread around the room. Um, Whoever you are, wherever you're from, the table is set for you. It is open for you. Come take a piece of bread, dip it in the wine, eat it, and ask God to touch your heart with the gospel in places it has not touched before. At the same time, I want us to pray for unity. I want us to pray for healing, that we'd be instruments in, in the hands of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide us. Make us whole. Enlighten us to what you're doing. When we see that we are wrong, teach us to repent and to change. Thank you. In your name, amen.